Please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 4. We've made it to chapter 4 in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. We will be jumping ahead to verses 10 through 13 of Mark chapter 4 to set the stage for this next chapter. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Please join with me again in prayer. Lord God, I ask for thy help in preaching thy word this unprofitable servant tasked with preaching the everlasting word of God might be helped. Lord, I pray for these thy people, their hearts would be opened, their minds enlightened, that have eyes to see, ears to hear. Holy Spirit, apply thy word to our hearts. Unfold the difficult things for us, O God. They would be true bread, true food, the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go, O Lord Jesus? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Equip us through the preaching. We might walk in thy ways unto thy glory. We might know thee. Our anxieties would be laid at thy feet. Thou wouldst give us a spirit of prayer, of boldness, of love, a sound mind. We would fear no evil, for thou art with us. The rod of thy authority, the staff of thy word, comfort us and guide us and lead us as our shepherd. Jesus, thou art our good shepherd. Give us to trust in thee by faith. Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. We thank Thee so much, O Lord, for this opportunity, for this Lord's Day to set aside as a foretaste of heaven where our minds and our hearts can be engaged in spiritual duties to find the answers for all of our seeking, all of our anxieties, all of our sin, all of our needs, Without thee, O Jesus, we can do nothing. Help us. Help us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he was alone... They that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? We come to this next chapter, chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark. So far we have not had any parables, and that's one of the most cherished aspects of the Gospels, is the parables. 
And they are truly full of much instruction and wisdom and truth for eternal life. But it's important, before we get into the parable of the sower, which he explains in this chapter. Next week we'll go back to verse 1 and walk all the way through the entire parable of the sower and Christ's exposition of it. It's important before we get to that to understand what is the purpose of parables. And that's the title of our sermon, The Purpose of Parables. Why parables? Why does Jesus speak in parables? And what is a parable? Parable is usually a way in the scriptures, or this Jesus or the prophets of old, of taking some sort of physical thing in nature and creation and applying spiritual realities through a story. Taking two ideas that occur in nature and showing how spiritual reality, spiritual truth can be taught through these things. It's an analogy, a symbol. And they're very important, very instructive. You see, the Bible says in Mark chapter 12, verse 37, that the common people heard Jesus gladly. Why? Because he spoke plainly unto them. He spoke plainly. And as we at this church look back to the Puritans, specifically the Baptist Puritans, what was one of their main emphases? Plain preaching. Not simply theological orations. They were beautiful and well-crafted for the sake of it itself. But things that stuck in the mind and the heart. Things that people could understand. Jesus was no high-tower theologian. Jesus spoke to the common man and woman in a way that they could understand intellectually. And that's why they heard him gladly. If nothing else, his stories were entertaining. His parables were entertaining. But there's much more to it than that. Much more to it than that. And that is our goal today. To understand why. Why parables? We are lucky that Jesus himself gives us the answer. And it is a hard doctrine today, a doctrine that flesh and blood cannot bear, but a doctrine that we find much comfort in as well as to why there are parables, how that ties in to salvation of sinners, God's decree, election, reprobation. How do we balance these things? We will have three points today. First, truth revealed. Truth revealed. Secondly, truth concealed. Truth concealed. And number three, comfort in complexity. Taking comfort in complexity. First, truth revealed. We find this in verse 11a, first half of 11. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of, of the kingdom of God. When first asked by his disciples, he tells the parable of the sower, which again we'll get into next week. They approach him when he's alone, privately. Explain this parable to us, as the other parallel passages tell us. Explain to us this parable. What do you mean? What are you trying to communicate through this parable? When he was alone, they ask him about it. His first words in answering them, is unto you it is given, given to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Notice that this knowledge, this knowing, unto you it is given to know, this enlightening, this revelation was given them, given them as a gift, something from without, not something from within themselves. He didn't just aid them. It was given to them. And it was given to a certain class. To them. To you, he says. Again, in the King James, you, plural. All of his disciples. To you, my disciples. To us, the Christians, believers, the church. It is given. The people whom Christ came to save. From this, we should learn a few things. That God, and God alone, is the revealer of spiritual truth. All spiritual knowledge, all spiritual truth comes from God. 
Anything that we know, anything that a person can know spiritually unto salvation are, are given to them from God. And it has to be from God. The knowing, the understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, namely the gospel and all of the spiritual truths in which it is contained and consists, have to be given to the disciples from without. And this still remains true today, not just in this passage, not just in Jesus' lifetime with his disciples, but with us who remain his disciples, the ones whom he also prays for in John chapter 17. He prays not only for the disciples that were with him, but also for us, those who would believe through the message of his disciples as they went out. You see, with the fall of Adam into sin, all men have been born into a state of sin. We've covered this in the Heidelberg. It's spoken about in our confession and in the scriptures. That all human beings are born sinful and with a sin nature. Obviously, a young baby, an infant, is not committing sin. But their nature is sinful. They are stained with sin. Given enough time, they will sin. It is their nature. It is their proclivity. It is genetically passed on to them, if you will, but spiritually, they are born this way. Romans 5.12 talks about that. All people now are born with a nature of sin. All humanity, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, are born dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses and sins. Incapable and unwilling to know God. To serve God. To seek God. As Romans 3 talks about. None seek God. None desire God. None do good. All are corrupt and evil and wicked in their ways. In Reformed theology, this is called the doctrine of total depravity, as we know. Total depravity is a somewhat misleading title. Makes it sound like everyone is as bad as they could be which is not the case. We're not all as bad as we could be, but we are all equally sinful. We are all equally depraved totally in every part and aspect of who we are. Our mind is depraved by sin. Our heart and affections and desires are depraved by sin. Our actions are depraved by sin. Our bodies are depraved and affected by sin. Man is born totally depraved. Every part, every faculty is affected by sin. From birth, man is adverse to God, adverse to the church, and given, desirous of even, sinful desires and sinful actions. Now, this sinful nature causes all human beings to be incapable in themselves of rightly or effectually comprehending spiritual truth. They're unable. They're dead. Dead. Dead people can rot. That's it. They're unable to comprehend spiritual truth, i.e., the mystery of the kingdom of God, as our text says. And anyone who's worked with friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, we, we know this by experience. If you've shared the gospel, shared the love of Jesus Christ with people, begged even sometimes with a loved one or a close friend, please come to Christ. You laid Christ bare before them, plainly before them. Maybe you've tried all sorts of different tactics, evangelistic methods, apologetic methods, arguing about the age of the earth, evolution, philosophy, theology with them. And you get nowhere. We've all experienced that. You get nowhere. You can even get somebody to admit, you're right. You're right, that is true. But I won't come to Christ. I've seen people with tears in their eyes saying, yes, I know that is all true. It is as you say. Maybe later in life I will come to Christ. But not now. Now is for me. There's nothing we can do to make a dead person alive, spiritually or physically. 
No amount, dear congregation, of logical prowess, apologetic skill, factual evidence, scriptural reasoning, or godly instruction from their youth up can ever convince a human being of the truths of Christianity, ever. They cannot comprehend it. It has to be given to them to believe. It has to be given to them to understand, just like the disciples here in this passage. To you it is given. A man born in sin and still in a state of sin, unbelief, shall never turn. Never. He will never get saved. He will never be converted. He will never become Christ from a human effort, from human work. No. God alone, our good and gracious and loving God alone saves. He alone gives to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. God alone is able to bring a man from death to life, to call forth all of the Lazaruses that exist, all of his elect people unto him. And when they hear his voice, rise you from the grave and come out, you dead bones, they will rise and walk forth in the life of God. God alone can have grace upon a man and cause him to become a new creature in Christ Jesus as Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us. The salvation of a man, as we see. From a state of sin to a state of grace, from unbelief to belief, from death to life, is a supernatural work of God. Even as Reformed cessationists, which remember, God is working supernaturally. When I've had conversations with my Pentecostal family, my charismatic family, my charismatic friends about the gifts, miracles, they forget, and they're usually Arminian, they forget I'm more of a supernaturalist than they. Because I believe that God raises the dead to life every single day. It was common when Baptists and Pentecostals would argue back and forth for the Pentecostals to talk about, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, and the Baptists to say, that's nothing. We do that every Sunday. And they do their altar calls. Silly, but the sentiment is true. We believe in a supernatural God working supernaturally upon sinners. This is not a natural occurrence. We must keep this in mind when we think about our own salvation and those around us that we're witnessing to. It's not a natural occurrence. God can and does use many different means and methods to affect this work of salvation in different people, whether it be some well-crafted argument of logic and fact and scientific evidence mixed with the truth of the gospel, the scriptures, that basically lays aside the person's cavils against Christianity and points them to the truth. Whether it's something like that or just the bare reading of a few verses from the scriptures. God can and does use both. And either way, it is supernatural that someone believes. We must remember that in every case, whoever plants and whoever waters and by whatever means they use in planting and watering it is God that giveth the increase. 1 Corinthians 3.7 God, dear congregation, is the sovereign enlightener of men and women. If he does not work alongside the preaching of the gospel, none can or ever shall believe. No one wants to believe. No one wants to come to Christ. The Bible is crystal clear about this. If man remains in his own state, if an unbeliever stays the way he is without God supernaturally working upon him, he will never come to Christ. He will never believe. Man doesn't want God. That's just the clear teaching of Scripture. As long 
as this present age remains, though, as long as sinners exist, Christ's words to Nicodemus are still and shall be ever written in the heavens, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We could rephrase it for our passage, except a man be born again, he cannot know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Again, although God shall work, how and when he desires to effect the salvation of sinners, yet we must be sure, we must be sure and careful that we are using means of reaching sinners that is most congruent with God's means of conversion. With God's means of conversion. We must make sure that how we are attempting to reach people with the gospel, how we are sharing and proclaiming the truth of Christianity is congruent with how God works. God can work in spite of us, of course. But we should join alongside in being a means of grace, a means of salvation unto people. He useth us. He does not have to, but he chooses. What a joy, what a delight. Do not fudge that up. Don't mess with that. Do not put stumbling blocks in the way. It's easy to do. Because I want to go into a situation and I have an apologetic method I shall employ. Whether it be I have 50 Bible facts and Bible contradictions that I can answer. I know much about science and geology. I go in with a presuppositional method, right? It's really popular in reform circles. Go in and just tell people they know nothing. You can never know anything. So here's the Bible. All of those are well and good and equally can be and are used by God. But if we go in with just our dis- decision as to how we're going to move forward, how we're going to present the gospel, we get in the way. God worketh how he chooseth, when he chooseth. We must make sure that we are not leaning on the arm of the flesh. I prefer a more presuppositional method myself in apologetics. But that doesn't mean if there's the conversation is profitably going some other way about evidences or something, you don't go that way. That's foolish. And vice versa. You let the Spirit lead you in preaching the truth and pointing your hearer to Christ. We must not lean on the arm of the flesh. We must not use worldly means. As a hate preacher myself, as I've been labeled so many times, even since my babes, my days of being a babe in Christ, just months old, 18, I saw the hypocrisy coming out of atheism, coming out of unbelief, saw the hypocrisy of the evangelical churches I was being brought into because they were using worldly means. They were giving me D-list entertainment, tickling my ears rather than give me the truth of Christianity, the truth of the Bible, what the Bible says. Christ sovereignly brought me to his grace and he has for all of us. Sovereignly brought us to salvation. We must remember that what we win people with in our evangelistic efforts as a church or individually is what we win them to. What we win them with is what we win them to. So if you begin building a friendship, an evangelistic relationship with someone, and it's based on evidences and worldly means of reaching them and pointing them to Christ and trying to get them to agree that it would be a good idea to be a Christian, you have to stay there. You have to stay there. If churches win people into their doors by entertaining them with poor D-list entertainment, That's what they must do. We want to get the goats to come stand with us. Now we have to become goat feeders and neglect the sheep. And that's the hypocrisy I saw coming into Christianity. That's the hypocrisy I saw when coming into Christianity. Because I knew different. And every true Christian knows different. That it was God who reached in and plucked them. He gave them to understand the truth of Christianity. I see a lot of people right now 
and have for a while. Making cohorts of Jordan Petersons. If you know who that is, it's an atheistic philosopher who has a metaphysical Christianity. Thinks Christianity is very helpful. There's a lot of people making those, trying to win them with those same arguments, rather than laboring alongside with God, being used of God to win and make Christians by the truth of Scripture. Dear believer, in preaching the gospel, we must do one thing. Only one thing is necessary, that we know nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. We must stick to the old paths, as the prophets say, the old paths of gospel witness, the men and the women in the past who were used of God in great revivals. Look to them. What did they do? Prayer. Preaching the word. Calling sinners to repentance and belief in the Savior being freely offered before them. They don't have methods other than that. We must preach what we know. Preach what we know. And we must know Christ alone as the only means of salvation. For we all do. The entire enterprise of reaching the lost, must be bathed in prayer, fervent prayer, earnest prayer, and reliance upon God, the Holy Spirit, to make his word effectual to sinners. And it shall be. It shall be. Many of us have been privileged and honored and blessed by God to be a part in winning someone to Jesus Christ. Or in discipling someone. Raising them up, encouraging them, watering the seed. None of that can be done on our own. It must be by God's power. The arm of the flesh is of no avail. Remember Jonah, salvation, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is God's prerogative, not man's. Man doesn't choose to believe upon God. And we can't convince a man to choose to believe upon God. No, it's God's prerogative alone. Salvation is, as Jesus told Paul in Acts 26, the opening of the spiritually blind eyes of the unregenerate. It is the turning from sin's darkness to God's light. It is the releasing from the power of Satan unto the lordship of God. It is the forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future. It is the inheritance of the saints, the sanctification of redeemed sinners in faith. That's Acts chapter 26, verse 18. In that list, can any of these things be done by us? Can we persuade a person into forgiveness? Can we persuade someone by our own means, to lay down their weapons and stop rebelling against God? No. None of these things can be done by man or human means. God alone can work these things. Jesus Christ said in one of the most beautiful chapters in the Gospel of John, John 6, verse 63, he said, It is the Spirit that quickeneth or makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. You cannot come to Christ. No one can. Of their own accord. How does this fit in with election and the decree of God? Well, what does Jesus say about his disciples? Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Unto us. Dear congregation, us. You and I. Unto us it is given, if we be Christian, To know the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been given. Given to us freely. By the supernatural, sovereign regeneration of our souls. From death to life and salvation. We know both intellectually now, truly, and by experience what the gospel is. What the gospel is. That we are saved by the work of Christ alone. 
through faith in that work alone, by the grace of God alone, freely as a gift. That's the gospel. And we know that experientially as Christians as well as intellectually. But to others, it has not been given. It's been given to us, the disciples of Jesus Christ, who have been made willing in the day of his power. Here's a couple of passages from our confession on this very topic. In chapter 3, specifically, of the decree of God, they write, God has decreed in himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. So all things, everything that takes place, everything that happens, God has decreed it of his own will, of his own goodness and pleasure and joy, whatever comes to pass. In paragraph 3, they say, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. And those are all straight scriptural quotations right there. By the decree of God, some men and some angels are predestinated. Now the question needs to be asked. If God didn't predestine anyone, if God didn't elect anyone to be saved, would anyone be saved? No. The Bible's clear again. Dead in trespasses and sins. Rebels against God. None desire God. None seek after him. So they're made willing in the day of his power. God would be loving and merciful. I've said this many times and I say it again because it's helpful when talking with people about election and the decree of God and predestination. God would be loving, merciful, kind, tender, patient if he never saved a single person. Because humans choose to sin. Humans have earned hell. The fact that he saves any is an astounding measure of grace that we cannot even speak of. To put into words is impossible. In paragraph 5 of that same chapter, they say, those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. What does all that mean? That he chose to save some out of his love and his mercy. He chose to do so. He didn't look through some quarter of time that's not talked about in the Bible that I often hear my Arminian friends talk about. And see who would believe and then choose them. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our belief. We're saved by grace. By grace through faith. And that very faith is given to us, as they say in 14 paragraph 1. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe, to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. So that we see that our election, our salvation, is all of grace, all of mercy. How then do we improve our election and our regeneration? We hold fast to the means of grace, the reading of the scriptures, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, the Lord's day, the partaking of the Lord's supper, partaking of baptism, These means of grace are what strengthen us. How we improve our election. You're not just saved and that's it. No. We're called to go on. As C.S. Lewis said, higher and further in. We continue pushing on in the glory that is revealed to us. Second point, truth concealed. Verses 11b, second half of verse 11 through 12. 
Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and then here, but unto them that are without. All these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Just as God reveals truth to certain people, according to his own sovereign good pleasure, so too he conceals truth for certain people according to his own good purpose and decree. God leaves the reprobate, the reprobate, in their ignorance and rebellion. He says, but unto them that are without, without God, without spiritual understanding. Those outside of the gates, those outside of the church, They see, we read in this verse. Seeing, they may see and not perceive. They see, but they don't actually see. They see with the eye, physical eye, but not spiritually. They hear, but they don't actually hear. Why? Because, as we read, the flesh profits nothing. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot understand it, as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. There's much more there, but what is the purpose then of parables? What is the purpose? Because we have his answer in this verse. Specifically for the reprobate. It says that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. This sentence is what is called by grammarians, in Greek, a henna clause, because it starts with the Greek conjunction, ina, which is often translated that, so that, in order that. And it basically starts a clause or a sentence that gives the intention of what is being done. Purpose or intent. I do this or that thing, or he does this or that thing, so that this or that will happen. So that this or that might occur. Do you see that construction works? So often when you see that or in order that or so that in your Bible, when you're reading especially in argumentative passages or didactic passages like the epistles or portions here in the Gospels, this is what's happening. And you'll often know too if it's followed by a word lest, should, might. I do this so that this will happen. Jesus speaks in parables Why? So that, though they see, those without, though they see and hear his work and his teaching with their physical eyes and their physical ears, yet they will not grasp with any spiritual prophet what is done or said by Jesus Christ. With the intent, the intended result being that they will not come to salvation. They will not be converted And they will not have their sins forgiven. This is a hard saying indeed. Hard saying indeed. But as Charles Spurgeon said about the doctrine of election, predestination, and reprobation, he said, if you don't see it in the Bible, I can't help you. I don't think you need theology. I think you need an optometrist. Jesus speaks in parables to further confuse the lost to further harden them, further blind them, lest they be saved, so that they are not saved. To his elect, to you, he says, the parables strengthen their faith. The parables teach them, give them spiritual understanding, deepen their love and affection for him. But to the reprobate, the parables establish them even more strongly in their rebellion and unbelief. Like Pharaoh, he hardened his heart, but then so did God, further hardened his heart by passing over him, as our confession says. Remember the people of Israel constantly, we read about it today in Exodus. They're delivered, they're brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, miraculous through the Red Sea. You think they'd do anything God says now? See, if man had any good in him, any desire naturally within him to follow God, Israel would have obeyed. How could you not? 
Yet what do they do? Moses, being the prophet before them, leads them out. Saved, salvation. Baptized through the Red Sea. Now, God's calling me to go up and get the law for how we shall live, how shall we, be, we shall be governed as a nation under God. A nation ruled by God who has God as their Lord. Has the Lord as their God. Amazing. We'll wait patiently. No, what do they do? Give us a God that we can worship, Aaron. They say to his brother, give us a God that we might worship. Just like the Egyptians had. Give us something we can look at. They make the golden calf. Moses comes down. He's like, what is going on? Aaron says, I don't know. It just happened. We threw the stuff in. It popped out. It was a miracle. Lies. This is the natural heart of man. This is the natural heart of man laid bare before us. The people of Israel, even with this great light given to them above all nations, harden their hearts time and time again. Read the prophets. Read the prophets. Read the histories. They always turned aside. Isaiah 44, 18 is a great example of that. Same here. Jesus Christ himself is before them. I've often heard people tell me, and I've even thought myself, if Jesus was right in front of me physically, I'd have no problem believing. My faith would be so strong. Maybe it'd be stronger, maybe. But no, things would not be better, especially with an unconverted person. They would spit in his face and mock him, tear his beard out, and crucify him again. So here the people have Jesus Christ physically before them. The word of God incarnate. Dwelling among them. God manifest in the flesh. John 1.14. 1 Timothy 3.16. They have this. And yet, they're without understanding. He came to his own, and his own received him not. John 1, verse 11. They rejected him. And he hardens them even further. The elect of God. Hear this. We, Christians, those who are saved, the elect, receive undue mercy. Mercy they don't deserve. And the reprobate simply receive the justice they do deserve. In our confession on reprobation, it says others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Left to themselves, they're passed over, as some theologians put it. How do we apply this? Well, let us be diligent. As Christians who are saved, the elect of God, how we hear, how we hear God's word daily when we read it, how we hear it in the preaching, and the singing, when God preaches to us, when Jesus himself preaches to us in the Lord's Supper, let us be careful how we hear. Careful how we hear. Diligent to understand what we hear. Luke eight eighteen, Jesus says, Take heed therefore how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. The elect have been given. Therefore, take heed. Take heed. Improve it. Lean into it. Make it experientially real by seeking God. Asking that he would bless your reading. Not just skimming through your daily reading so you can check it off. Let us also, secondly, be earnest in pleading with others to understand the gospel. Make sure they understand it. Though it is the work of God alone to save and convert, that doesn't mean we just drop it in their lap and walk away. No, we labor as though it were up to us. As though our explanations, our argumentation would be the means that wins them. As if it were our duty only. You labor that hard while praying and seeking God. And praying that he would bless it. Because it is God's work alone. Amen. Third, and I will quickly wrap up. Comfort and complexity. Verse 13, Jesus says, And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? 
So we have this difficulty here in front of us that we talk about often in this doctrine of election, reprobation. Jesus expects his disciples to understand his teachings because to them it was given to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. So how do we hold in balance God's exclusive sovereign right to enlighten the spiritual mind and man's duty to believe and understand the mystery of the kingdom of God? How do we balance those? As well as our own duty to improve our spiritual life, to grow in our faith with the truth that it is God alone who can increase our faith. We can't do it on our own. How do we hold those things in balance? This seems like a problem. This is complex. But we, we can have comfort here. Both are true. Charles Spurgeon again said, I don't need to reconcile friends. Friends don't need reconciliation. The Bible says none believe unless God makes them believe. Causes them to believe. Gives them a new heart to believe. Yet, men and women, when they hear the gospel preached to them, are commanded to believe. We don't need to reconcile those things. Both are true. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Towards the end of the giving of the law, the five books. It says this. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that we can't fully explain or understand in the scriptures, the Trinity. We can get close. We can, we can echo what the scriptures seem to be saying and what they do say. We'll never fully grasp the triune nature of God. We'll never fully grasp how God commands men to repent and believe the gospel. And yet they can't. And yet that people are saved. And that from our perspective, it looks like we're the ones choosing God. Because we are replacing our faith in him. But it is God that gives that faith. These things are true. But the intricacies of it are secret. They belong to the Lord. We simply receive what is revealed to us. And claim it as our own. That is true. It is our truth as Christians. It's revealed to us and it belongs to us and to our children forever. The only the elect shall believe, yet all who hear the gospel are required to believe upon Christ, the Savior revealed in it. A few summary points of application. None can believe lest God makes his truth effectual unto salvation for them. That's true. We have to cling to that. And personally, be thankful to God, grateful, gratitude, humble, that not because of anything we did, nothing distinguishes us from someone else other than God's mercy on us. There was no reason why he chose you or I to believe and have mercy on us that we know of. But he has. We should be grateful for it. And in the proclamation of the gospel, as we preach to our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, we must remember that they must hear the gospel. We must bring them the gospel. We can't just sit back and say, well, people will believe. Who's going to believe? They're elect. I don't have to do anything. No. We must go out and win souls. We are soul winners. We are Christians. He who winneth souls is wise. We're commanded to go and preach the gospel unto every creature, bringing the gospel of everlasting grace and mercy to the ends of the earth. And I'm so grateful that I belong to a church where the men evangelize, where the families evangelize, and do outreach, whether it's on the streets, going door to door, with neighbors, with friends, with family, with coworkers. Last, we are commanded to grow in our faith, but we cannot, lest it be God that gives us the increase. Philippians 2 is always a great summation of this, how to hold this in balance. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 reads this way. Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God that does the work. But we are called to work out our own salvation. That sounds like it belongs to us to grow. Then he goes to the next verse. For it is God that which worketh in you. It's God which worketh in you. Dear congregation, let us understand what we hear. To us, it has been given to know the mystery of the gospel. To us, it is entrusted to preach this gospel to the world. To us, it is incumbent to leave the effectual working of God. Leave those things to the effectual working of God. Placing no stumbling block in the way of sinners. To us, it has been given to love God daily and lay down our lives, picking up our cross and following him before a watching world. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again we thank thee for thy work of salvation in our hearts for freely choosing to reveal thyself to us, bringing us to the cross of thy dear, only begotten Son, giving us thy Holy Spirit. Lord, let us live in gratitude, O God, for this great grace and covering our guilt and our sin. Put a fire within our breasts, O Lord, to win the lost, to bring thy word to them, to pray for revival. To not rest until we see a flag, the banner of Christ on every hill. Lord, we thank thee so much for what thou hast done. Please apply this word to our heart throughout the week and comfort us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.